It's a pleasure to look into God's Word with you this morning and to continue in the uh, Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We'll do a little review from last week. Don um, commented that um, really the king is outlining, outlining a um, code of conduct for citizens of his kingdom. These uh, citizens were Jesus' disciples during his earthly ministry. They are his disciples during the church age today as he reigns from heaven. And they will be his followers during the tribulation and his uh, Jesus reign here on earth. So basically, this conduct, these uh, qualities, um, are those that anyone should display who is a follower of the king, Jesus. Dunn also commented that Jesus' rules are radical and revolutionary. They are not of this world. A.W. Tozer was quoted as um, saying, basically, to gain a fairly accurate description of the world, all we have to do is turn the Beatitudes wrong side out. Okay? Um, So, say the reverse of the Beatitudes, basically, this is the values of the world. Jesus' teachings are radical. So, that this code of conduct is unattainable in our own energy, by our own efforts. It takes an active working of the Holy Spirit to to work through us and to allow us to uh, comply with the conduct that the king has specified for his, his citizens. We covered four Beatitudes last week. We're going to look at three this morning and save the last for next week. In his um, Beatitudes or his blessings, the king presents a portrait of his ideal citizen. And we've, uh, we've already noted that really none of us can measure up, even with the Holy Spirit's enabling we, um, we find ourselves short, we find ourselves inadequate. And so we have to confess gladly that, Lord Jesus, King, you alone are the ideal one. You alone are the one who complies with this conduct. It's not impossible because you displayed it. You are our example, you're the ultimate um, Citizen, you're the, the one who displays in perfection these, uh, these beatitudes. And so uh, it draws forth our love for him. So let's read Matthew 5, beginning with verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Lord Jesus, we trust that you have something very important to share with us, to tell us this morning, 
Um, we ask for open hearts. We ask for a, um, a thorough and clear presentation of your truth. We ask in your name. Amen. As we look at each of these Beatitudes, these uh, three Beatitudes this morning, let's do several things. First, let's ask questions. Let's, um, let's pose a question about the Beatitudes, something that we don't understand, that we don't know, so that we can get understanding. By the Holy Spirit's teaching, we will get, um, uh, we'll get a better knowledge of what it is the Lord is saying. Second, let's define our terms. What is it that the Lord is saying in each beatitude? Third, let's identify a biblical example. Let's look at scripture and say, okay, well, here's, um, here's a man, here's a woman uh, who displays these attributes. Then uh, we'll look to the Lord Jesus as our perfect example, our ultimate um, example, our ideal. And then finally, for each beatitude, we'll make a personal application. Okay, first question. This is for all eight beatitudes. They all say, they're all worded, they shall. Okay, with the exception of uh, the first one. Uh, verse 4, they shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit. Verse, um, verse 6, they shall be filled. Is all this future? Is there some aspect of blessing that we have in this lifetime on this earth? Or uh, did the Lord Jesus intend that these were all uh, for glory? These were all for heaven, okay? So, um, so that's the first question. We're gonna apply it to, uh, to all the Beatitudes this morning. The first Beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Questions. What mercy can I expect if I am merciful? Part two, what mercy will I lose if I am merciless? if I'm not merciful. Mercy is not simply pitying someone, but it's, a, it's being actively compassionate toward others. Mercy doesn't sit in its seat as a spectator, as a bystander, and watch. Mercy has to get up and do something to help the, um, the helpless. It's sympathy with the misery of another, especially sympathy in action. That's mercy. There are kinds of mercy. There's um, a general treatment of all people in which we're compassionate and tenderhearted. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was gentle and kind in his dealings with men, women, children of all classes. And Isaiah, spoke of the, um, of the Lord Jesus. You, you know, he could have overwhelmed us with his righteousness and pointing to our failures, um, but, the, but the prophet Isaiah said, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. The Lord is tender. He's, um, uh, he's uh, tender toward us, and where he sees a, uh, a bit of faith or um, uh, a step of obedience, he fans that little spark into flame 
He, um, he's gentle. He's tender. A second form of mercy is particular care for those in distress, those suffering illness, discouragement, grief. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. The um, illustration from Scripture uh, that... Um, that seems to match this mercy is, not surprisingly, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. A certain lawyer wanted to excuse himself from the rigorous demands of the law, and so um, um, when uh, the Lord asked him what the law was, he quoted Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer wanted to let himself off the hook, and he asked the question, who is my neighbor? You know, if I move to, um, if I move to the desert or Antarctica, I don't have to love because I have no neighbors, right? Maybe that was the lawyer's thinking. So um, the Lord told the lawyer a parable. And in this parable, uh, robbers come and they, um, they beat up this, uh, this traveler on the dusty road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the scripture says that they left him half dead. In other words, um, he's dying. And so, uh, thankfully, along down this road comes a, a Levite and um, also a priest. Helpers, right? No. They, they see the man on the road, they see the blood, and they, they take the other side of the road around him. But then there's a third traveler, a third one comes along, and he's a despised Samaritan. People don't like the Samaritans. But this Samaritan saw this, um, this need, and he had compassion, the Lord said. Active or passive? Active. He, um, uh, he bandaged the man's wounds. He brought him to an end. He ministered to the man. He took care of him. He nursed him. And so the Lord Jesus asked the lawyer, he said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who was among the thieves? <laughs> well, uh, the lawyer had to answer. He said, he, he who showed mercy on him. And so the Lord told him, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbors yourself. This is an example of the second kind of mercy where we get out of our chair and we help um, people who are in distress. We help those who are in need. There's a third type of mercy, and that's a big one. It's the forgiveness of those who have offended us. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. This kind of mercy withholds judgment from those who deserve it. It's the opposite of the harsh, critical, self-righteous, 
judgment that the Lord Jesus condemns in Matthew 7. And we're going to look at that in the uh, weeks or months ahead. And then finally, there's a, a fourth type. Uh, there's the love for the unsaved. During his earthly ministry, people approached the Lord Jesus for help. And the disciples were there um, to protect him, and they deflected these people away. They said, go, go away. You know, uh, you're, you're bothering us. We have important ministry. <laughs> I know. But the Lord Jesus wanted to minister to them. And um, so when we, uh, we see the unsaved, uh, we should be compelled by a sense of their danger. These people are in danger. They're headed to hell. Jesus wanted to help them. He wanted to, to break through this um, phalanx of disciples, and he did to, to minister to, um, uh, to these condemned um, sinners. Perhaps you can think of other types of mercy, but those are four. We find um, a negative example of the forgiveness kind of mercy in Matthew 18. And we will have teaching on this soon, so we're not going to go in depth. But um, it is the teaching, it's the parable of the wicked servant. And this um, uh, servant's master saw that his servant was uh, badly in debt. He owed 10,000 talents. Someone, uh, some commentator pointed out that the, um, the estimated economy of that area only produced about 300 talents per year. And this, this servant owed 10,000. The, the Lord showing here that there was no way for him to pay it off. Uh, how many years would it take for the whole region to pay, pay off this, um, uh, this debt? But the servant pleaded with his master, and the master was moved with compassion. And he, the scripture says, released him. He released him and forgave the debt in its entirety. Wow, 10,000 talents. He just wrote it off. You're forgiven. You're, you're still my servant. So the servant left his master and he bumped into uh, a fellow servant on the street who owed him 100 denarii. A denarius is um, uh, a day's wage. This servant, this other servant, owed him 100 days' wages. He grabbed him by the throat and he said, pay me, pay me what you owe me. And he had him thrown into prison until he was going to pay off that 100 denarii. Well, the master heard about the servant's harshness. And he called him and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? The master delivered his servant to torturers until he should pay back all that he owed. The parable is not about the master. The parable is about the wicked servant, the unforgiving servant. About the hard heart of the unforgiving servant. 
The wicked servant should have shown the same depth and breadth and intensity of compassion that, uh, that the master had shown him, and he did not. He did not. Our eternal gratitude for the Lord Jesus' mercy should lead us to forgive others. The Lord Jesus comments on this parable. He says, so uh, about um, the doom of this wicked servant, so my heavenly Father will also do to each of you uh, if, um, if you from his heart, if you from your heart do not forgive his brother his trespasses, so will my heavenly Father do to you if you don't forgive from your heart your brother's trespasses. Okay, so that's the lesson for us is that we should forgive as we have been forgiven. What mercy will I stand to lose if I'm not forgiving toward my brother? Well, not the mercy of salvation because God gives that free to the believing sinner. This is God's free and unconditional gift. Free, without cost. Of infinite cost to the Father because he gave his Son. But uh, free to us and also free because it's without cause. God loves you and me without cause. He loves us because he loves us. What mercy then do I stand to lose? Well, if I'm so unforgiving and unrelenting and um, demanding, impatient toward my brethren, I stand to lose the mercy for living today that would come from these brothers I'm, do, I'm being so harsh with. And I, I stand to lose the Lord's mercy too as I go about my day um, being, um, being brutal and self-righteous. Okay, so that's today, but also I stand to lose mercy at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be rewards that I may have had that I'm not going to have because I dealt so, um, so harshly with my brothers and sisters. So that's, that's mercy. That's an example of mercy, a negative example, but um, let's turn to something positive. The Lord Jesus is our ultimate example. He is rich in mercy. The Psalms are filled with praise for the Lord's compassion. Psalm 130, for example, says, With the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And then in Psalm 145, here are these words, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The Lord Jesus loves to forgive. To the paralytic who was lowered into the house by his friends, the Lord Jesus proclaimed, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Wow. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. To the woman taken in adultery, right there in the middle of the crowd at the temple. The Pharisees were going to stone her. And um, 
the Lord Jesus challenged the Pharisees and one by one they left until um, the Lord and the woman were left there. Uh, and he said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. To the woman who washed the Lord's feet with her tears in worship, he said, oh, he said of her, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The Lord loves forgiveness. He loves to forgive sinners. How may we apply this beatitude? By releasing offenders from their debt as freely as the Lord has released us from ours. Abraham Lincoln uh, was um, full of uh, anecdotes, full of stories to illustrate points. He, he told this story, he said, I feel a great deal like the sick man in Illinois, who was told he probably hadn't many days longer to live, and he ought to make peace with any enemies he might have. He, he said the man he hated worst of all was a fellow named Brown in the next village. So they sent for Brown, and when he came, the sick man began to, began to say in a voice as weak as Moses's that he wanted to die at peace with all his fellow creatures, and he hoped that he and Brown could now shake hands and bury all their enmity. The scene was becoming altogether too pathetic for Brown, who had to get out his handkerchief and wipe the gathering tears from his eyes. After a parting that would have, would have softened the heart of a grindstone, Brown had about reached the room door when the sick man rose up on his elbow and called out to him, and he said, See here, Brown, if I recover from this illness, the grudge stands. <laughs> the problem is um, I don't forgive if I don't forget. I haven't really released the person of his debt. We need to, uh, we need to forgive the person freely as we have been forgiven. And again, the problem is when I don't forgive, the, pro the offenses collect. They tend to collect and they block the Lord's blessing. They block the Lord's mercy that he would love to show to me. I keep track of the offenses in a mental ledger. Uh, ledger is a, a sheet with lines on it. And um, um, brother so-and-so did this again. Oh, yeah, well, okay. That's, uh, that's the fifth time this week that he's offended me. And um, the 53rd time this year... I'll forgive him this time, but he's got 52 other offenses that he needs to make up for. We shouldn't do that. Um, when we forgive, we should forget. By contrast, another man, an influential businessman, lay dying. And among the last words his family heard him whisper was, All those who've double-crossed me. Write their offenses in the sand. The morning tide 
would sweep the beach, and in the morning they'd be gone. And this, uh, this businessman, though offended, was forgiving, and he wanted all those offenses to be forgotten. We should tell the Lord, you've been offended, um, you should tell the Lord all about it. Tell him what the offense was, tell him who, who uh, committed the offense, and leave them with him. Write them in the sand and let the tide sweep them out to sea. The Lord said in Psalm 18, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. A third, I'm sorry, a second beatitude this morning is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Question, is a pure heart simply something I receive from Jesus? And the uh, second question is, how does a person see God? Well, let's define some terms. Uh, pure in heart. The heart is the center of our moral nature and our spiritual life. Everything springs from our heart. That's what gives um, energy to our thoughts, our direction, our drive in life. It's our heart. Pure. Pure in heart, uh, that word pure means free from contamination, unmixed. If we could look at our first slide. Silver is minted into coins that are 80 to 90% pure. Not so pure. But um, they are uh, mixed with copper for strength. Jewelry is mixed with... Um, um, other elements uh, also for strength, and it's about 92.5% pure. So when you look at a ring or a piece of jewelry and it's got a 925 on it, that means that it's 92.5% pure. Silver bullion used for uh, commercial exchange has a purity of 99.9%. And the, um, the silver experts call that 3-9 fine, 99.9% pure. Okay, so the Lord says you need a pure heart. You need purity of heart. And this word pure, ethically or morally, means to be free from corrupt desire and guilt. So to be pure in heart is to have a heart with motives unmixed, thoughts holy, conscience clean. It's different from mere outward purity. Uh, the Lord railed on the Pharisees. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. We travel through the graveyard, and here are the, um, the tombs, beautiful white structures, um, ornately decorated. Wow, that's a beautiful structure. That's a beautiful tomb. But you open the door to, um, 
to the tomb. And it's all dead man's bones. Uh, we're not going to stay here. Um, this is an awful place. It's all unclean. Jesus said, you Pharisees, you're, you're whitewashed tombs. You've got this outward purity. You look great uh, outwardly. You perform all these ceremonies and, um, um, and yet uh, inside you're, you're corrupt. The Lord hates hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is representing ourselves as someone that we're not. We're saying our, we're, we're spiritual and we're not. The Lord desires truth in the inward parts. He stressed inward purity in approaching him in the Psalms. And uh, one particular Psalm, uh, Psalm 15. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. The Lord wants that truth in the inward parts. We speak the truth in our hearts when we are honest with our, ourselves. We're genuine. That's what the Lord wants. Be honest, the Lord says. Jesus is passionate for purity, much more than even the investors for their silver. Well, what did Jesus mean that a person would see God? The pure in heart will see God. There are, uh, there are several ways. First, um, through communion with him in his word by his Holy Spirit. The Lord promised his disciples, he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. He who loves me, I will manifest myself to him. Well, what does that mean? What does manifest mean? Well, it means that uh, he will make a physical appearance to the one who loves his commandments. Or... He will give a spiritual experience, a confirmation to that one. By his Holy Spirit, he'll give that blessed assurance that I've, I've done right, that he's with me, that he is real, he's here, he's present. He is, um, he is holding my hand, in effect. By, uh, by this, the Lord promised his... Um, his appearance to the disciples physically, or that he would make his presence known to them by the Holy Spirit. The, um, there's a second uh, appearance, and that is by supernatural, that the Lord would appear physically, um, and he did that for his disciples after his, um, his resurrection. And uh, then there's a third way that a person sees God, and that is at the judgment seat of Christ. Obviously, uh, we will see the Lord Jesus there. Why have the saints through the ages desired to see God? Well, David desired to see God. We read in Psalm 27, to behold his beauty. One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Beauty. The Lord is beautiful. The, um, um, the dictionary defines this beauty as pleasantness, grace, favor, goodness. We have known saints who were dear to us because they resembled the Lord. They were so, uh, so precious um, because of their love, their devotion, their, um, uh, their spirit of prayer. And um, it, they, they bring back memories um, uh, because they so resembled the Lord. They were so much like him. Would you not like to see the one that they resemble? Would you not like to see the original, the one from whom uh, their blessings flowed? David said, uh, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Not just for a visit, but to dwell. And then a second reason is, um, yes, to behold his beauty, but then also um, because there's joy in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> uh, Psalm 16, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a thrill to say goodbye to the last tear that we shed, to say goodbye to death and to sorrow and to, to dwell with the Lord in, the, in his presence where there are pleasures forevermore. Our example then in the Old Testament is, um, is King David. Um, praise the Lord for his psalms. Jesus is our perfect example. I appreciated um, David's um, comment on the temptation of the Lord a couple of um, uh, weeks ago. And uh, the Lord is our example for purity. He put purity to the test. Jesus endured 40 days in the wilderness without comfort, without food, with apparently the only company he had was the master deceiver. How'd you like that? And um, he was subjected to that, and he fully passed that. He, uh, he fully endured that with no, no problem. Not that Jesus' purity was ever in question. The 40 days in the wilderness was a proving of his purity, not a pass-fail exam. So our example is the Lord Jesus, and he proved his purity of heart in the desert. Application. God purifies the heart when a believer is born again. Peter told the apostles and uh, elders in Jerusalem about the Gentiles. He said, God who knows the heart acknowledged them, that is the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us Jews, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Okay, So the Gentiles have these pure hearts, just like the Lord gave us. The challenge is how to keep this heart 
pure, how to keep it clean. Um, because, as uh, Proverbs says, we have to keep our heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Again, the idea that um, it's from the person's heart that all his actions flow, his attitudes, his, um, his direction in life. God's instruction is, guard your hearts from evil, for out of it spring the actions of life. Many challenges face the one today who would uh, keep his heart so pure that he can see and enjoy the Lord. I don't mean to offend or embarrass anyone, but I feel compelled to address the subject of pornography. Pornography, it's a challenge to keeping a pure heart. It comes from Greek words, porn, meaning a harlot or a prostitute, and graph, meaning a drawing or a painting or writing. And the dictionary de defines pornography as the depiction of erotic behavior, as in pictures or writing intended to cause sexual excitement. That's what pornography is. It was likely a problem for those in uh, Jesus' time, for those who, um, uh, who were there during his earthly ministry. How do we know that? Pompeii was a city near Naples, Italy, that was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius, a volcano, in uh, AD 79. The buildings um, stayed intact for um, uh, archaeologists in the 1800s to come through, and they, they found uh, a city that was, I mean, just buried in ash, but basically just as it was back in 79 AD. And as they, um, uh, as they came through and, and um, dug out the buildings, they found paintings and statues that um, showed that pornography was really as available in Rome, in the Rome area, as it is in the Bay Area today. And the reasons that I have for using it as an application this morning is that the viewing or reading of, of pornography seems prevalent among, even among the followers of Jesus. The Lord sympathizes with us in our struggle for purity of heart. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Whatever is more attractive and addictive and defiling than pornography, our Lord Jesus endured that temptation and he was totally victorious over it. The viewing of pornography, like any other sin, grieves the Holy Spirit and it cuts short my communion with the Lord. Communion stopped. Now I need to, uh, to seek his forgiveness, his restoration, and the Lord Jesus has made full provision for our failure and for our restoration with um, 
promises like that found in uh, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The heart is like a library. Next slide, please. The Holy Spirit has closed and condemned and locked a portion of this library. Next slide. Some of the thousands of titles that we find in this library are like the magazine Allure. You know what Allure means? It means to uh, attract. And um, actually, this magazine is available at my grocery store in the checkout line, and I don't recommend it. Um, uh, here's another title, Stolen Waters Taste Sweet. There's the official dictionary of sarcasm. The mystery religions. Tricks of an IRS cheat. Loving me, a 180-day journey to self-love. <laughs> and... Um, Getting Even are some of the books that are in this forbidden corner of the library. The Holy Spirit locked them shut, off limits, forbidden. And yet we are able to take our homemade key, it's been well worn at this point, and to open the lock and to enter that library. I'm not talking about a physical library with books and uh, CDs and DVDs. I'm talking about the heart, the mind, the Holy Spirit has placed off limits. And yet I can enter this, this, um, this library and, and seem that others will not notice. We need to keep that door shut. There's another section of the library that is, um, there's no lock on the door. In fact, there may be no door at all. We have easy access to this library 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this, uh, this library has 66 books in it. <laughs> the psalmist said, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then in Psalm 19, by the Lord's statutes, his commandments, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So here's the library um, that I should be accessing and that is the, uh, the 66 books of the Bible. By committing God's word to heart and applying God's word to my daily life, by responding to temptations as the Lord Jesus did with God's word, I will cultivate that pure heart so that I can see the Lord. Finally, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be, saw, they shall be called sons of God, Question, why are peacemakers called 
the sons of God. A peacemaker is one who comes between two warring parties to make reconciliation. What a peacemaker is not, a peacemaker is not a person uh, who loves peace. He's not a, a, a one of a peaceful disposition, but um, he's one who takes action to restore fellowship. Again, he's not one who sits in a chair and says, oh yeah, I love peace. He's one who, uh, who leaves and, uh, and does something about conflict. Our natural response to conflict is to back away and watch and see who wins. Darwin called this survival of the fittest, but it's a lousy, uh, it's a lousy peace. It's not really a peace at all. It's just one person enforcing his desires on another. The godly response is to enter the conflict and reach a resolution for both sides even if it makes taking blows from either party. There's a cost involved. We're not made sons of God by mediating, by being peacemakers. We're made sons of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John wrote, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. This peacemaking beatitude comes seventh, perhaps because an effective mediator must display the six prior beatitudes. He must be poor in spirit, that is, not reliant or proud, not self-reliant, but aware of his own weaknesses. He must mourn. He's keenly aware of how, in the past, he's disappointed his Heavenly Father. He must be meek, not pushy, demanding, impatient, overbearing. He must hunger and thirst for righteousness, desiring all things to be done to the satisfaction and the glory of God. He must be merciful, spelling out the terms of peace in tender firmness. And he must be pure in heart, no selfish motives, no profiting from the misery of others. These are the qualifications of a peacemaker. God is the God of peace. He loves peace. He goes by this title five times in the New Testament. And we recognize God's desire for reconciling sinners in sending the Lord Jesus as our sacrifice on Calvary's cross. When we labor for the reconciliation of others, we want to bring the two parties together and restore their, their fellowship, we bear a likeness to our Heavenly Father. And so that's how we are called the sons of God. Later in this chapter, the Lord Jesus said that we should love our enemies that we may be sons of our Father in heaven. And, he, and there he's expressing the same need, the same um, uh, result of bearing our Father's likeness. Our example of, of um, peacemaking is Paul. And uh, he wrote a letter to Philemon asking Philemon to receive back his runaway servant, Onesimus, 
Onesimus had come to the Lord. He, um, he had a new heart, a heart of obedience, and Paul said, please, take him back. Take him back. Of course, the Lord Jesus is our ultimate example. The word peacemaker occurs in one other place in the New Testament as a verb, and it's uh, in Colossians 1.20. It pleased the Father that in him, that is the Lord Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The Lord Jesus is the, our intermediary between an offended God and an enemy called mankind. God is not the enemy, man is the enemy. But when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Application, is there hostility in your home, in your school, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, or even at the chapel? Be God's agent of reconciliation to bring the differing parties together. We look around our environment, our school, our, um, our workplace, and we recognize that many are without Christ. And um, as God's ambassadors, we can claim with his authority terms of peace. We can offer that to, um, to sinners who are, are hellbound. This, um, the terms of peace are, first, acknowledge your personal rebellion against the Lord. You've sinned. You, you deserve uh, being apart from him forever in eternity in a, in a place called hell. Second, understand the terms of peace. Understand the offer of peace that God offers through the blood of Jesus, his son. And third, trust him for salvation. Obey him as king. We've uh, kind of raced through these three Beatitudes, but um, they all point to our ultimate example, the Lord Jesus. Our desire, um, as we show mercy to others, as we purify our hearts, as we act as God's ambassadors, is to become more like the King himself. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art, come in thy sweetness, Come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. I've asked uh, David if he would lead us in singing that hymn. And then we'll pray. Lord, thank you for being our example. Um, had you not, um, we would have thought that these um, beatitudes were not even worth, uh, not even worth trying. But uh, we desire to... Um, to obtain mercy, we desire to see God, and we desire that we might be called sons of God to your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.